0: Our scripture reading tonight will be taken from Revelations, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Revelations 1, 1 through 3. If you're following along in the Red Pew Bibles, the seat backs in front of you, that's page 1028. Revelations 1, 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near."
1: The book of Revelation is a mystery to a lot of people. In fact, when I was in junior high and high school, I remember our teachers would always ask us, what do you want to study next quarter? And everybody wanted to study Revelation. And the teacher would almost always say, oh no, no, I, that's, that's a tough book and we're gonna save that for later. And then when the teacher finally got around to teaching Revelation, we found out that it wasn't, as, it, it wasn't what we thought. It, we, we thought as high school, junior high students, we thought it was all about dragons and beasts and, and, and we had heard from our friends at school that it was about wars at the end of time and things like that. The message of Revelation is actually a lot more exciting than that. The message of Revelation is written to comfort and to strengthen New Testament Christians, to hold on to their faith, to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. The message of Revelation was given to give us a shot in the arm spiritually so that we can stand and be what Jesus wants us to be in the world around us. And so tonight, what I'd like for us to do is just spend a few minutes, and I'd like for us to to think about some, some ideas and concepts that'll help us to read the book of Revelation more effectively. Maybe you've tried to read Revelation. Maybe you've started at chapter one and okay, I'm with you so far, and you you read about the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapters two and three. You you read about the throne of God and about the lamb that we talked about this morning in Revelation chapters four and five, but then the seals start to open. And all of a sudden, things start to get very, very different from our perspective, our understanding of things. What I'd like for you to do is just keep these six principles, these six concepts in your mind as you read. And you might be surprised how much you glean from the book of Revelation. Sound good? By the way, this is not gonna take away every question you have. It's not going to solve every mystery that people have puzzled over for years, but it will help us to get at the heart of what God wants us to understand from the book of Revelation. If that sounds fair, then let's do this. Number one, as we read Revelation, we need to remember and keep in mind from start to finish, from chapter 1 to chapter 22, the main character is Jesus Christ. He is the main character. As a matter of fact, look in your Bibles to the passage Larry just read a moment ago. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the Bible introduces the book of Revelation this way. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. What is this book all about? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can take that phrase, that word of, a couple of different ways. Certainly it is information that is coming from Jesus Christ through the Apostle John to us. It's information about things that must shortly take place, it says. It's about things that have to do with spiritual warfare, information that Jesus is giving us. But in another sense, you can also take that expression, that word of and it is a revelation about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's like. And when you just look at Jesus in this book, he is mentioned some 311 times in 404 verses. That's significant. This book is about Jesus. It's about his victory, it's about his people, it's about his faithfulness. As you look just, for, for example, just through the first few chapters of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 5, he's called the faithful witness. Just jot down the reference. Don't try to write all the words that are on the screen behind me. You're going to get left behind in just a minute. He's called the firstborn of the dead, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He's called the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He's called the alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As we think about who Jesus is, he fits all these descriptions, doesn't he? And more than that, he is almighty, Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. He is the living one, Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. He is the very Son of God, Revelation 2 and verse 18. Jesus is 30 times in the book of Revelation as we spoke about this morning called the Lamb. In fact, that is the most frequent designation for Jesus in the book of Revelation, the Lamb. He is the sacrifice, the offering, the one who came and was submissive and obedient to the will of his Father, even to the point of his death. He is the Lamb that was given so that our sins might be taken away. John chapter 1 verse 29 and 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. And so it would be a great study as you read the book of Revelation to just do this. Have a pen and a paper off to the side and just mark down every way that Jesus is described in the book of Revelation. That'd be an amazing study all by itself. So as we read the book, keep in mind Jesus is the main character. And always ask this question, what is Jesus doing in this particular passage? What is being said about him? Or what are his enemies doing to try to thwart his purposes, to thwart his plans? Because that's what the book deals with, the conflict. The main character is Jesus. That'll help you read the book. Second this evening, as we read through the book of Revelation, keep this in mind. The book itself is highly symbolic. I know people have trouble sometimes with the symbols and the figures in Revelation, but Revelation itself says this is something that is signified. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Notice again. He sent and signified, or made it known, some translations say, by his angel to his servant John. And the word there in the Greek language is the word that's used in the Gospel of John to indicate the signs that Jesus did. When Jesus made the water into wine in John chapter 2, and when Jesus raised Lazarus in John chapter 11. The Bible says these are signs, and the signs are indicated to show you that Jesus is more than just a man, that he is the divine Son of God. They're signs, they're symbols of who he is. And so it is in the book of Revelation that the information that's being given to us is described as symbolic. These are signs, many of them. I've talked to people over the years that have talked about Revelation and we have visited and back and forth and a lot of people out in, the, out in the world who may know a little bit about Revelation. They'll say, well, do you take Revelation literal or do you take it as, a, as symbolic, as figurative? And the answer is yes. Sometimes, Revelation is giving us literal information. Sometimes, Revelation is giving us symbolic information. And the context, brothers and sisters and friends, is, is what determines what is symbolic and what is not. Remember that. The context determines what is symbolic and what is not. For example, there are some literal places in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter one, verse nine, John says, I was on the island of Patmos when I wrote this book. That's a literal place. There still today is a place called the island of Patmos out there in the sea off the coast of Turkey and that's where John was when he wrote this particular book. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 11 there are some cities that are named. Jesus is writing letters to specific congregations in specific cities. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and other places and those are literal and as you read the book you've got to say okay this is literal this makes sense because in the context that's the way it's intended but then there's some figurative things as well. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says that the churches are seven golden lampstands. That's a figurative term. A church is a group of people. That's all it is. It's a group of people who've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. But the Bible calls the church, in Revelation 1, verse 12, seven golden lampstands. Well, how do you know that's what the figure means? How do you know that's, that's what the symbol means? Because when you look at verse 20 of Revelation chapter 1, The Bible tells you the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so there are symbols being used to represent groups of people that belong to Jesus in various places in these literal cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. Throughout the book of Revelation, you find reference to blood and the sun being turned to uh, uh, sackcloth and the moon to blood. You'll, you'll find references to horses and horsemen and dragons and lambs and, and locust plagues and things like that. Let the context determine what is symbolic and what is figurative. Uh, what is literal? We need as Christians to rightly divide God's word. Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen. Somebody might ask the question, okay, well, why did God see fit to write Revelation this way? Why are there all these symbols and why are there all these figures of speech? Why not just tell us plainly? Open your Bibles to Revelation 6 and look at verses 12 through 16 for just a moment. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. On September 11th, 2001, I woke up in my house and going through my day I was I had turned on the television and I, I was watching Good Morning America and I guess I was witness to there was a burning building on the on the screen and, and I couldn't figure out exactly what had happened and they were they were talking about trying to figure and, and, and guess what had happened to the World Trade Center and as I was watching this news coverage and kind of wondering what had happened all of a sudden the second plane hit the tower and you if you live through that day if you remember that day you know how terrible it was question how do you put into words for somebody who wasn't there maybe your kids or your grandkids how do you describe the emotions of that day how do you describe how terrible it was to see people jumping to their deaths and 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 to see those buildings falling knowing who was inside and knowing that We were going to war as a country. How do you describe all that, all the events of that day? How do you put that into adequate words to tell people this was awful? The way the Bible does that is the Bible uses what's called apocalyptic language. That's what apocalyptic language is, brothers and sisters. It is God telling us how terrible his judgment is going to be. And so as you look at Revelation chapter six, and you look at verse, for example, 14, the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. In other words, apocalyptic language, what it does is it, it shows nature, the things that are permanent, all of a sudden they're not so permanent anymore. And That's a lot like what September 11th was like, wasn't it? You thought those buildings were there and they were permanent, they're made of steel and concrete, they're not going anywhere, but all of a sudden, boom, they're gone. it's like the sky is rolled up and it's like the mountains are moved out of their place. And it's awful and it's terrible. And then the Bible says people react to this. Look at verse 15 of Revelation 6. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains because it's so terrible. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I use the illustration of September 11th to show... When God pours out his judgment, I'm not saying that's what September 11th was, but when God decides to pour out his wrath and his judgment, nobody's able to stand. It is as terrible and as unimaginable as can be conceived. And so the way that the Bible talks about these things is it talks about the sky being rolled up like a scroll, the moon and the, the sun being turned to blood and sackcloth, stars being swept from the sky, It's a highly symbolic book, and it's trying to communicate to you and me. This is how serious it becomes when God pours out the cup of his wrath upon mankind. Next, as you read the book of Revelation, keep this in mind, number three. Many of its promises were going to happen shortly. Many of its promises were going to happen shortly. I happen to believe that there are some passages in Revelation that do refer to the end of the world. They do refer to the final judgment. For example, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, the Bible describes a great white throne. It describes all, all those who have ever lived and died standing before God and the books are opened. Reference to the final judgment, the end of time. But not everything in Revelation is about that. Not everything in Revelation is about what's still in the future. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and notice the phrase. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that these things must shortly take place. Question, is the Lord wrong? Was he mistaken? And the answer is no. Some of what's written in Revelation has already occurred, brothers and sisters, has already happened. In Revelation chapter one verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Jesus talks about judging nations like Rome in this book. Jesus talks about judging congregations in this book. And some of those things have already come to pass. The time was near 2000 years ago when the book was written. Revelation chapter 3 verse 11. Turn over there for just a moment if you would. Revelation chapter 3 verse 11. Behold I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Did you realize that all through the Old Testament and even in the New, sometimes the Bible uses the language I am coming quickly to describe a judgment in history. When God comes in judgment upon a nation, upon an entity, when God decides to judge even one of his own congregations, that can happen, and that can be described figuratively as a coming of the Lord in judgment. That's the language that the Bible uses. But there's a final coming, a second coming of Jesus that's literal in nature. That's not what's being discussed in Revelation chapter 3 verse 11. And so as you read through the book, keep in mind the promises that are being made, many of them were promised that they were going to take place very, very soon. In Revelation chapter 22, you find all of these passages kind of in a rapid succession, things which must shortly take place. I am coming quickly, Revelation 22, verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 10, the time is at hand. Revelation 22, verse 12, I am coming quickly. We need to be careful as Bible students, as readers of God's Word, To let the Bible tell us the time frame, to let the Bible tell us when some of these events are going to come to pass. I am coming quickly, Revelation twenty-two and verse twenty, because many of the promises of the Book of Revelation, it says very plainly, we're going to quickly come to pass things that were going to happen. And think about it: if you're a a reader of Revelation two thousand years ago, and Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, I'm going to make some things right. I'm going to." I'm going to avenge the blood of the martyrs. When Jesus says those kinds of things to the church 2,000 years ago, they could listen to that, they could take strength and comfort from knowing that their Lord was fighting on their side. And how we need to know that same Lord stands by us and cares for us today. Next, as you read the book of Revelation, remember this, it's purpose primarily It's not trying to give you some kind of secret code to the end of the world. It's not trying to give you some kind of insider information. Its purpose was just this, to strengthen persecuted Christians. I remember one of my favorite Bible teachers years ago saying this, we have trouble with revelation because we know next to nothing about persecution. We know next to nothing about what it's like to stand for faith and to to stand for what's, what's right and what's true and to really suffer for it. I'm talking loss of jobs, loss of our freedoms, even suffering and death. We don't know much about that by our own experience. But that's what this book was written for. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John introduces himself to his brethren as their companion in the tribulation. So as you read through this book, keep in mind this is written to people who are hurting because they love the Lord, because they want to be faithful to Him, and they want to honor Him with their lives. They're hurting because of that. Someone is mistreating them because of those things. In Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11, you see a picture of these martyrs that are under the throne of God having been slain for the Word of God, and they ask a question, how long, O Lord? Until you avenge our blood upon the earth. I've always been intrigued by that in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. It tells me, among other things, that not every question that we would like answered is answered just because we pass from this life. Not everything I'd like to know about do I have access to. I don't have all the information. Even after I have died, they were wondering, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood upon the earth? Notice this, as you look at Revelation chapter seven and verse 14 and John sees an innumerable multitude. And who are these? The Bible says these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. These are the people who have overcome. They stood for Jesus, they held on to his word, they did not give up their faith that's who this innumerable multitude is that's worshiping God around his throne. Revelation 13, verse 7. Revelation 13, verse 15. There's a beast that comes out of the sea. There's a beast upon the land. And both of them, who work for the devil, by the way, both of these beasts make war with the saints, it says. That's their purpose. That's their job. And so, John is describing by inspiration in the very best language possible that there's a war going on. And you're involved if you're a Christian. You're part of that war. The devil is doing his best to undermine the faith of the people of God. Revelation 17 verse six, the harlot who rides on the beast, she is described as being drunk with the blood of the saints. And in Revelation 18 verse 24, the Bible speaks of the blood of the prophets and the saints. My point here is this, You're going to miss the meaning of Revelation if you don't understand that the purpose of this book is to strengthen people who are being persecuted. It's about Jesus. He is the main character. And it is about standing for Him even when times are tough, even when it's difficult. Because there are some things that are very serious and consequences that are very serious when we decide we're going to serve the Lord. Next, as you think about... how to read Revelation. Keep this in mind. The book of Revelation makes reference to past conflicts and kingdoms. It makes reference to some past conflicts and kingdoms. If you've read the book of Daniel, and you've ever gotten to Daniel chapter 7, what you'll find is this. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, You can turn your Bible there if you'd like to and see this for yourself. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, God gave Daniel a a preview of what was to come in world history. God said, Daniel, there are going to be four kingdoms. The first one's like a lion. The second one is like a bear. The third one's like a leopard. And the fourth one is a horrible, grotesque type of beast. Can't even really describe it as an animal. And and these four kingdoms are going to arise in succession. And we know from the book of Daniel that these four kingdoms refer specifically to the kingdom of Babylon, the lion, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the bear, the kingdom of Greece, the leopard, and the kingdom of Rome. That is that grotesque beast that, that really is hard to describe. And so God takes Daniel and he puts him there in 550 BC and he says, look through time, look through history, and you can see these four kingdoms coming, one, two, three, four. Okay, keep that in mind for just a minute. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13, if you would. Revelation chapter 13. My point in bringing this up is to show you that a lot of what we read in Revelation has to do with kingdoms and conflicts that happened centuries ago. In Revelation chapter 13 beginning in verse 1 John says then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea and the beast had seven heads and ten horns it's very grotesque it looks very much like what Daniel described and on his horns ten crowns and on his head a blasphemous name and I looked at that beast it says in verse 2 and he was like a leopard and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, the devil, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. What has just been done in Revelation 13 verses one through three? You remember those beasts that Daniel saw? The lion? and then the bear, and then the leopard, and then this grotesque beast. Now John is standing, centuries later, on the other end of history, and he's looking backwards through time. He's looking at an empire that is persecuting Christians, coincidentally. And the Bible says that this beast rises out of the sea and it looks like a leopard, it looks like a bear, it looks like a lion. What's happening? Revelation 13 is being connected with what we read about in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And my point is, this is not about some future antichrist. It's not about some future kingdom of Jesus that's going to be set up at the end of time after the battle of Armageddon. It's not any of that. This has to do with a lot of conflicts and kingdoms that have long since passed from history. But were very real at the time that the book of Revelation was being written. We need to keep that in mind as we read. Next, it refers to the kingdom of God as a present reality, this is important. There are a lot of people today that believe that the kingdom of God has not been established. They believe that we are not part of the kingdom of God, that Jesus has not yet returned, and that he is going to come to this world and he's gonna set up his kingdom on the throne of David in Jerusalem, in the temple, and reign there for a thousand years. When you read the book of Revelation, keep this in mind, the kingdom is described as a present reality. In Revelation chapter one, verse six, John says, Christ has made us Christians to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God. What do you become when you become a Christian? Well, you're saved, you're forgiven. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You are added to the church, the Bible says, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. What do you get when you become a Christian? You become part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ is unique. Here's why it's unique. Because it can't be geographically discerned there's no place on the globe on the map where you can circle and say that's where jesus kingdom is because the territory that jesus conquers is our hearts and our minds that's the geography of the kingdom of god it's your heart it's your mind when you give yourself to him you obey his will you become part of his kingdom and the kingdom is here now brothers and sisters and friends When we give ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we obey his word, when we repent of our sin and are baptized, we become part of the kingdom. He is our king. We have a law. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. And that's what Revelation is teaching as well. In Revelation chapter one verse nine, we are fellow partakers or companions in the kingdom, John says. In Revelation five verses nine and 10, Christ purchased men from every tribe and language and people and nation, as we talked about this morning, and he made them to be a kingdom. It's critical for us to understand that point. We are part of the kingdom now. The devil and his powers are working against the kingdom. They're trying to thwart the kingdom. But ultimately, faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ grants us the victory. That's why when Pilate talked to Jesus about the kingdom and the kind of king he was gonna be, he said, are you a king, Jesus? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish is a spiritual kingdom and its territory, its geography is the hearts and the minds of people. Keep that in mind as you read the book of Revelation, because what we are doing right now, listen to me very carefully, what we are doing right now is we are fighting for ground that has already been won by the cross. If you're a Christian, that's what you're doing. You're fighting for ground that has already been won by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hold on to that ground. And the way that you do that is by trusting Jesus and constantly seeking to submit to his will in everything, in every part of our lives, whether it's our recreation or whether it's our work or whether it's our worship, we're going to do what the Bible says because we are the kingdom and because we have a king and because we're going to serve him. That's what revelation deals with. Hold on to what Jesus has done. Hold on to his word and his will. Those six concepts, if you'll use those and keep those in your mind as you read the book of Revelation, will help you to get at the heart of what God intends for you to understand. He wants you to know that no matter what the world may throw at you, no matter what the devil may do, you don't have to give up. You don't have to give in. Those who overcome, God says, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Those who overcome, I will give a crown. Those who overcome, are faithful till death, I will bless with eternal life. We win. All we need to do is trust and obey. If we can help you to obey the gospel this evening, if there's a need that you have, if we can pray with you or pray for you, whatever you need, won't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing?